There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast, we discuss carbon taxes and why economists love them so much. So before we begin episode three, I'd like to thank you all for all the good messages after last week's launch. A lot of you loved the chat with John. He really gave us great insight into life as an economist in the 70s and 80s in Ireland. Edgar's review of Brexit was also very popular. He really captured all the strategy behind the key moments of the Brexit saga so far. So make sure to check out both of those episodes if you get a chance. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Maureen Lynch and we're going to talk about carbon taxes and why economists love them so much. Maureen is a research officer at the Economic and Social Research Institute, specialising in energy economics, but has also worked in the area of climate economics. So why talk about carbon taxes? Well, this time last year, as we were approaching budget time, we heard constant cries from environmental groups and economists in favour of increasing the carbon tax rate. And we're approaching that time of year again, so it might be useful for this podcast to cover the full implications of carbon tax policy. So to start off, I ask Maren the most pressing question, why do economists love carbon taxes so much? And Maren begins by explaining the economic reasoning behind a carbon tax in the first place. To contextualise it a bit, economists have this idea that markets allocate resources efficiently. Um, And what that means, essentially, is that if you have uh, a number of people who can freely trade a particular commodity, then everything will sort itself out so that whoever values the commodity the most gets the commodity and whoever doesn't get that commodity gets some kind of compensation instead. So it basically means that if we have a nice market, everything working away, then there's no better way to allocate the resources amongst the people. Yeah. Um, the problem is that really only works for a kind of a theoretical market that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. In real life, things get in the way. And one of the things that gets in the way is the idea of an externality. So this is where you and I might be trading something between us, Niall. Yeah. I, I might be trying to buy something off you, so I get the good from you, you get money from me. But there's a third person who didn't trade the good, didn't get any money, but who was affected by our trade. Yeah. Um, that's what we call an externality. There's an external person who's affected by the trade. And that's exactly what uh, carbon emissions are. So if I buy some oil, from some diesel from my local garage, I put it in my car and I burn it, I got some diesel, my garage got some money, 
But what everybody else got is extra carbon in the atmosphere that they didn't ask for and that I haven't compensated them for. Yeah. So that's an example of a market failure. Uh, and the reason economists are excited about carbon taxes is because what the a carbon tax can do is it can correct that failure. What it does is it takes the cost of that carbon and actually makes me pay for it because yeah. I have to pay a carbon tax. So that means that instead of the cost of the extra carbon that was emitted being borne by everybody else, it means I have to bear the cost of that carbon, which means I'm going to actually reduce the amount of carbon that I consume because I have to pay for it. So to sum up, I suppose the economics behind your analogy is that you place a value on consuming diesel before a carbon tax, you weigh up that value against the production costs. After a carbon tax, you weigh up that value against the production and environmental costs. And you'll reduce your consumption if the total cost is greater than your value. So you're guided towards reducing your consumption where it hurts you the least. That's the idea, yeah. We want to emit less carbon, so we'll make it more expensive and we'll get less. Yeah. That's the kind of the easy question to answer. The much harder question there is, okay, well, how much carbon do we want? And the answer to that question is exactly what you said. You want enough carbon so that the benefits from that carbon are greater than the costs. Now, at the moment, we're consuming far too much carbon worldwide, particularly in Western developed countries like Ireland. So the costs of the carbon that we're incurring on the environment are much higher than the benefits we're getting out of it, really. Yeah. Which is why we have to increase the cost of carbon through something like a carbon tax. Yeah. But that's not to say that we have to get carbon all the way down to zero today or tomorrow. Yeah. There's still benefits to consuming goods like electricity or like anything, really. You know, pretty much anything you consume, some carbon was emitted somewhere in order to get it to you. Yeah. Um, and nobody is saying that we'd be better off if we all stopped consuming everything tomorrow because then we'd all just die. Yeah. So there is this kind of sweet point and it's a question of, well, what is the sweet point? And then crucially, how do we translate that sweet point into a kind of a monetary value, a euro per tonne? Yeah. If we know we want to emit a maximum of this many tonnes of carbon this year and less every year into the future, then how does that translate into a euro per tonne of carbon this year and every year into the future? Yeah. So maybe we can elaborate on the element of choice in relation to carbon tax. Um, so we know we need to consume less carbon and there's lots of different ways we can do that. We can drive less, we can consume less electricity and we can make this happen by a carbon tax or by, say, a subsidy. If we have a carbon tax, it increases the cost of everything and we reduce our consumption according to what suits us best. If we have a subsidy, say on certain types of home heating, well, we are guided towards reducing our carbon in that area. Now, that's fine if that's what you would prefer to do, but you might have preferred to drive less and keep your current heating system. Exactly, yeah. So different people value different things in different ways. Yeah. So if, you know, if, if you happen to, to, to live maybe five to ten kilometres from where you work... Um, and you're on a decent public transport line, then you could cut down your your driving without it having too much of a cost on your lifestyle because you could cycle or get the bus instead of driving and, and you're not so badly off. On the other hand, if you live in rural Ireland yeah. and you're maybe 30 kilometres from where you work and if you're suddenly told you can't drive anymore, that's going to have a massive impact on your lifestyle. You know, in, in an extreme case, you might become unemployed because you literally cannot get to your job and you need to find another way or you need to, you need to find another job or another house or else just go on the dole. Uh, so it's a bit... Um, the idea of a carbon tax is it lets everybody make the decision for themselves, taking their own preferences into account. Yeah. Um, and as well as that, just on a kind of a, 
a cost basis, there are some things that we can all do which will decrease carbon and save us money. Yeah. There are some things where the saving is probably, you know, about cancelled out by the cost and there are some things that you can do that will decrease carbon but will cost us some money so for example if you insulate your house you will Mm. decrease your carbon emissions and you will save money on your energy bills Uh, if you were to do something like install a solar panel you know it might break even over a long period of time and then if we were to do something like build a carbon capture and storage uh, generation unit that's going to cost us some money is going to cost us more than another way of reducing carbon. Yeah. So what a carbon tax does is it lets us choose the best ways. So we might start off with ways that will save us money as well and then move on to the more and more expensive yeah. ways of decreasing carbon. So another aspect of carbon taxes that I wanted to touch on is the concept of picking winners. And one good example here is if we have a number of new technologies coming on stream like solar or wind energy and we want the cheapest uh, technology. So a subsidy for wind energy would decide that we should use wind. It gives wind the unfair leg up. But if you have a carbon tax, they both fight it out in the market. And the market is a competition where the cheapest technology wins. So I suppose in order for a subsidy to work, we need to know what the cheapest technology is. And that's rarely the case. Exactly, yeah. So the the nice thing about a carbon tax is it treats every technology equally in terms of their carbon impact. If you just say for every tonne of carbon you emit, you have to pay 20, 30, 40, 50 euro, whatever it is, then that means that loads of different technologies will get a different boost, um, a benefit or a cost depending on their carbon output, but they're treated equally in terms of their carbon output. So that puts the decision completely in the hands of the person. It takes the decision away from policymakers. Uh, Another question that economists would always ask themselves is, what exactly is the market failure? The market failure that carbon taxes fix is this externality, this idea that carbon imposes a cost on everybody else that isn't born. But there might be another market failure somewhere. So let's say, for example that somebody would love to insulate their house but they just don't have the 20 grand that it's going to cost right now to do a deep retrofit well then in that case the market failure is a credit constraint they know there's no informational barrier they know what the benefits of insulating their house is and their preferences are aligned they'd like to insulate their house they'd like to save money on their energy bills but the reason they can't do it is because they're facing a credit constraint so in that case that's a different market failure so it just it requires a different policy solution. So a yeah. policy, a possible policy solution in that case might be a kind of a loan scheme yeah. where this person can maybe borrow the money up front to insulate their house and then pay it back based on the money that they're saving off their energy bills, for example. Yeah. Um, or another market failure might be the fact that we don't have enough information yet. So maybe there is... Um, a kind of an argument to be made for having some subsidisation of research and um, technology and development. So what that would do is it says, OK, we think that this technology could really reduce carbon, but we don't know for sure yet. We've got this informational block. Well, how about we subsidise some research into this particular technology and that might pay off in the future? Yeah. The problem comes when policymakers start to use a mix of policies to solve the same problem. So if the problem is, like we said, an externality, then that's solved by the carbon tax. If the problem is a credit constraint, that's solved by a loan. If the problem is a financial constraint, let's say it's not even that 
somebody is just in poverty, then that can be solved by a subsidy for sure. Yeah. But if a subsidy scheme targets everybody, then you're only you're missing uh, that then that's not really an appropriate policy instrument because you might be giving a subsidy to somebody who has a credit constraint or no credit constraint so yeah. it's not very well targeted so one market failure that i would add to your list is that of risk so for renewable energy generators they're faced with a lot of risk because the wind is uncertain as we all know and that uncertainty combined with the uncertainty of market prices creates an awful lot of risk You don't know when you're going to generate electricity and you don't know what price you're going to get at that time. So that would justify a type of subsidy like a a price floor, a minimum price so that you know, well, I know over the lifetime I'm going to generate X amount of units. That's very predictable. And if I have a minimum price, that's a lot more predictable. That means the investment is less risky. Now, the problem would be if there was a minimum price put in place to counteract the CO2 externality. And in practice a lot of times that minimum price is brought in for that purpose. Exactly, yeah. So if you want to counteract risk, you might use a subsidy um, that maybe kind of smooths out the expected revenue. So you might say, okay, well, when your revenues are really low, we'll give you a subsidy. But when your revenues are really high, you might actually take some of it back. And that means that it's kind of win-win for everybody. We're, we're, We're saying, okay, the consumer will bear the risk but the investor gets a reasonable return but doesn't get massive bumper profits or anything. Yeah. Whereas if we just say, okay, you can't seem to get through to the bank manager, we'll just give you a subsidy, we'll just give you an extra 20 quid on the megawatt hour no matter what, then that means when prices are really, really low, maybe prices are 10 euro per megawatt hour, okay, you're getting 30, fair enough. Yeah. But when prices go up to 250, you're getting 270. And sure, why do you need the extra 20 quid in that case? Yeah. And one thing I would add is that for every additional euro of a guarantee that we're offering to the investor, we're putting the electricity consumer on the line to pay an additional, an additional euro if prices fall. Now, it's important we get the risk profile right so that we can meet our climate targets, but we shouldn't overcompensate either because the consumer is faced with unnecessary risk. Up until now, the Irish consumer took all the risk and We don't know where the balance lies for certain, but it's almost certainly different to the current status quo where the consumer takes all the risk and is probably somewhere in the middle. Okay, so maybe we can move on. And one topic that might be interesting is the argument that carbon taxes work if we assume markets are competitive. In a competitive market, a firm uh, is faced with a carbon tax. They have no choice but to pass it on and that influences behaviour. But if the market is not competitive, the firm can absorb this cost and behaviour remains unchanged. So maybe we should think about how should we approach climate policy in that context? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, everybody's played Monopoly, right? And when you've got one person who owns everything, that's bad. Um, yeah. And But there are some industries where no matter what you do, you're not going to get to a perfectly competitive situation. You're just, and electricity would be one of them, energy in general is one as well. Um, the the problem is there are some industries where no matter what you do, you're not going to get 100 or 200 firms or the number of firms you'd need in order to get everything nice and competitive. So what do you do in that instance? Well, then in that instance, what you need is a regulator to come along and basically take the place of competitors. Yeah. So I suppose what an economist would argue is that regulation should force people to compete. So that... A, a, a company that is acting in a perfectly competitive market and a company that is acting 
in a well-regulated market would do exactly the same thing. Yeah. Now, I remember Dieter Helm gave a seminar here in the ESRI a couple of years ago, and he said something I've never forgotten. He, he said sometimes he asks his students, can you think of the most competitive market ever? Yeah. And most people say the stock market. You know, it's just, it's incredibly competitive. It's incredibly liquid. And, you know, these, these trades are made within seconds of each other. And all the stocks go up and down according to whatever information is available at, uh, about them at the time. Yeah. And then he asked his students, can you think of the most regulated market? Yeah. And another really good example is the stock market. Yeah. There's all sorts of regulations on who can trade and what you can trade and when you can trade. And can you trade these two things at the same time? And if you've traded this commodity can you trade that commodity so it just goes to show that regulation isn't necessarily a bad thing regulation doesn't mean that the government is sticking their fingers in and meddling with the market and moving it away from the best outcome for everybody regulation can be a good thing but regulation needs to be set up to solve market failures not to create new ones and that's why it's really important that we know in advance what exactly are the failures we're trying to fix and what's the best way of fixing them so that you have the, the firms behaving as if they would if there were loads and loads of competing firms, even if there were only maybe four or five other competing firms, which is what we have in energy markets. Okay, so it would seem that the first best outcome is a competitive market. Second best outcome is an uncompetitive market, but a regulator stepping in and setting up the rules of the game so that competitors act as if the market is competitive what you don't want is an uncompetitive market where the regulators play the game or worse again, set up rules that lead to people operating less competitively. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, regulation, just because regulation doesn't do what you want it to do doesn't mean it's not well-meaning. So, for example, a lot of people want to mandate energy companies to increase the efficiency of, you know, the household. So, you know, kind of the ESB network, or sorry, um. Uh, Electric Ireland or SSE or Board Gosh or whoever it is, they have to help their consumers become more energy efficient. And that sounds like a great thing, you know? You, you have to, you know, if you're going to supply energy to people, fine, but they have to be more efficient. Um, and that's going to reduce emissions and everything. But mm. if you think about it, that means that these companies have two conflicting mandates. So on the one hand, they're trying to maximise profits for their shareholders. And in a lot of the cases, the shareholders is us, the Irish people. But on the other hand, they're trying to decrease their sales by making their customers more efficient. How are they supposed to um, reconcile these two competing objectives? And the reality is they can't. So it's not a good idea to tell them, on the one hand, you have to make as much money as possible. And on the other hand, you have to try to curtail the amount of money you make. Yeah. It's probably better off to say, OK, you guys go ahead, maximise your profits and will give the job of making everybody any energy efficient to another body, such as the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland or something, which is why they give out grants and stuff. Okay, so we've talked a lot about carbon taxes themselves, but maybe we should move on to the potential counter-arguments. And the main counter-argument is often distributional effects, basically how a carbon tax affects those on lower incomes versus those on higher incomes. This increase in costs tends to be a larger share of a poor person's income. So if we, if we think of heating fuel, for example, a poorer household is more likely to use coal or other solid fuels. These have a higher carbon content and the carbon tax is going to hit these households harder. So you've done some work estimating these distributional effects. Yeah, so what we found was, what we did was we used a, a data set produced by the CSO. 
impose a household budgetary survey and perhaps some of the people listening have even participated in it um, and it's it's quite a good data set it's pretty demanding because what you have to do is you have to actually track everything that you bought for two weeks yeah. um, but what we were able to do is we were able to look at past expenditure patterns and say okay so who's buying what we were able to decompose that according to the households who spent the most who were the richest households and the households who spent the re- least the poorest households um, and then we were able to use a technique called micro simulation which you know all about hmm. where we were to say okay well based on past expenditure patterns let's assume that the energy related goods were this bit this much more expensive how would that change all the expenditure patterns yeah. And for the exact reasons you said, um, the poorest households end up spending the most as a proportion of their income on carbon tax. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of things we can do about that. Uh, one of the things economists really like is this idea of the tax and dividend model, mm. which is where you take the revenues, but you give it back to people. Yeah. Um, there are a number of different ways you can give it back to them. We can talk about that later on. But... One of the questions I've had before is, well, sure, how are you going to make any kind of a difference if you're taxing the people and then giving the money back? But the point is, you're giving the money back, but they're facing a new higher set of prices. Sure. So let's just say that tomorrow, cinema tickets suddenly became 80 euro per trip to the cinema. But everybody also got a, ch- a check in the post for 60 euro. Mm-hmm. Now, we would imagine that a lot of people would take that 60 euro and add it to the 20 euro they would have paid anyway and, and go head on to the cinema. Yeah. Yeah, they're going to go to the cinema just as much as they would. But if someone doesn't really like the cinema, if they weren't really paying 20 quid to go to the cinema as it was, we'll say there's two people, two tickets, 10 or each, then they're hardly going to turn around and pay 80 euro. They're going to take that 60 euro and use it to buy something else. So it's the same thing here. We're saying, OK, you're paying more money on carbon tax. Maybe you're paying an extra €200 euro per year than you would have paid last year. But we're going to give you an extra €200 euro and you can use that to spend it on whatever you like. And maybe some people will use it to spend exclusively on energy goods, but most people won't. Most people will consume a little bit less energy and a little bit less carbon, and then they'll use that extra money to maybe buy more or something else. So yeah. they're no worse off in terms of their budget. But what we do have is a decrease in carbon emissions, which is exactly what we're looking for in the first place. Okay, so you mentioned different ways to redistribute the revenue maybe we should discuss them for a moment now there are three objectives that come to mind when it comes to how you allocate this revenue first of all you could have an objective to help poverty and you use the tax benefit system basically you adjust taxes and benefits to target a greater proportion of this revenue towards those who are less well off secondly we could have a lump sum transfer that's basically a check in the post, every household gets the same amount regardless. And this is probably best used if your objective is just to get the carbon tax off the ground in the first place. Political acceptability is the name of the game. Finally, you could adjust labour taxes. And the whole idea here is to get people working, to employ more people. And this would be used if the objective was to increase economic growth. So that's pretty much the options on the table pretty much i mean there, you know alternatively you could try to ring fence it for subsidies or something like that yeah. but that's not exactly desirable for the the reasons we talked about already it, sure. it doesn't really fix any particular market failure yeah um if you want to the the tax and and welfare system is almost certainly the way to go if you want to do things in a progressive manner like you said for for obvious reasons um, there's also a potential for what's called a double dividend which is where if you decrease 
income taxes or labour taxes, then people have an incentive to emit less carbon, which is what we're going for, but we also get this nice side benefit where they have an incentive to provide more labour. Now, does that make a huge difference? Probably not, but it makes a bit of a difference. Yeah. It makes a difference to some families and it makes a difference to some industries and that's, you know, we'll, we'll take it. It's yeah. a nice extra benefit that we weren't looking for. So it's this double dividend. If, on the other hand, we want to go the lump sum route, it's, first of all, it is regressive because everybody gets the same. Yeah. You know, the richest households in the country get the exact same as the poorest households in the country. Um, it also can penalise larger families right. because if you just distribute the check on a per household basis rather than a per person basis then you might have um, just a single person living on their own gets the exact same as a couple with several children even though the couple with several children are obviously going to have to emit more carbon and going to have to pay more carbon tax because they've got to keep up the lifestyle of five or six people rather than one Sure. Um, and then there's another point which doesn't really seem to get raised much which is the administrative cost So the tax and the welfare system is sitting there ready to go. In pretty much every single budget, something gets tweaked. You know, you might, the fiver here, the fiver there, and the pension. You might fiddle with the USC rate. You might fiddle with the tax bans. And that just happens seamlessly and costlessly, or or close to costlessly, because these things get updated every year. If, on the other hand, you want to start giving everybody a lump sum, well, I mean, can you remember what happened with Irish Water? So when we had to send everybody their water bills back, And that was relatively straightforward to do because Irish Water already had a database of everybody who would pay their water bill. So it was just a matter of sending a cheque back to all those people. Sure. What if we want to send a cheque to every single household in the country? We don't have a national database of everybody in the country and their name and their address and where they live. We don't even have a decent database of where all the houses in the country are, let alone who's living in them and how many are holiday houses. So that would actually be a very big administrative cost we'd have to establish this register mm-hmm. um, it might be we might have difficulties complying with data protection and then we're going to get one check a year but sure we're paying our carbon tax every day of the year so if you think about it maybe it would be better to do it through the tax and the benefit system because then you're getting a little bit every week or every month yeah. as opposed to just once a year and you just have to make that due from January to December. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. So one of the reasons why people like the lump sum transfer is because this whole issue of political acceptability and a policy is most likely to get over the line if the benefits are concentrated and the costs are distributed So if you think about the carbon tax, the rebate concentrates the benefits. But your argument there is that, well, we're paying our taxes and benefits every day, so it's a bit more salient. And there are trade-offs there. It's hard to know what what comes out on top. It really is. When it comes to behavioural stuff and social acceptability and that kind of thing, it's it's difficult to know what exactly is going to, to play out. You can look at the literature and some of the arguments that you've made are, are made. Um, different jurisdictions have tried different things. Some yeah. jurisdictions have tried the lump sum. There is no jurisdiction that I found that literally sends everybody checking the post. So one example of a quote-unquote lump sum, for example, is in Switzerland. Um, but in Switzerland, it's not that every household gets a check in the post. It's that every household is obliged to contribute, um, is essentially obliged to purchase health insurance. Mm. So this is a lump cost that every household incurs every year. And what they did was they used the carbon tax revenues 
to reduce that. So instead of you having to pay 800 euro on your health insurance this year, you only had to pay 650 euro. And the difference was your carbon tax rebate. So that's, I guess it's a lump sum, but it's it's through a different channel. Yeah. Um, and it also really decreases the administrative costs because they were collecting that insurance cost anyway, whereas it doesn't have the extra cost that we'd have here. Um, another thing I'd say is there are, when it comes to things like renewable energy, there are policies that seem to have made um, renewable energy projects more socially acceptable in other countries, such as um, everybody kind of a, a co-op model where everybody sure. owns some of the local wind farm. However, the research we have from Ireland shows that's not actually what people want. People like the idea of getting a kind of a grant or a payment, but they don't like the idea of ownership, even though that model has been very successful in other countries. And then obviously the example that I mentioned before, water charges are perfectly acceptable in every other country in Europe, but they were not acceptable here in Ireland. So what I would say is it's really difficult when it comes to social acceptability. It's so difficult to know, oh, this type of recycling mechanism will trump that type of recycling mechanism. Here's what people accept. Here's what people won't. Because Ireland does seem to be a bit different to other countries. Um, I think what you really just have to do is just find a policy and, and go for it and yeah. hopefully people will will see the benefits of it and, and will understand the logic so definitely it seems that there's a framing issue how policies are packaged and presented to people is very important irish water is an example of how that should not be done but also there's this finding in the, in the literature that the carbon taxes are more successful in countries where the people of that country have greater trust in the establishment greater trust in the government if we think about ireland well then if there's low trust well then the lump sum will be more appropriate i don't know if that's the case or not but i suppose all these factors back up your point in that there's no one size fits all exactly yeah and it's it's difficult to test it's not like we can trial a carbon tax in wexford and see how we get on before we roll it out to the rest of the country maybe in the states you can do that not, (laughs) not so much here exactly yeah okay so we've talked about a lot about carbon taxes and in theory and how we can design things maybe we could turn to how things work out in practice and in Ireland there's a big debate about the carbon tax but the carbon tax is only on motor fuels and heating fuels it's not on electricity and electricity then is governed by the EU ETS EU emissions trading scheme and the justification for, for having the EU ETS is because we need one price across Europe for electricity so that we're not shutting down shiny, clean gas plants in Ireland in favour of rusty old coal plants in Poland or something like that. Um, but I suppose this, the fact that we have an EUTS, this can interact with other policies and create outcomes that would be unexpected. So one unexpected outcome is what people call the waterbed effect, where we have, we have subsidies in Ireland for renewables, but because we have this EUETS system, it means that it doesn't necessarily lead to a reduction in carbon emissions, some would suggest. Maybe you could explain, first of all, what the EU ETS is and how this waterfed effect uh, comes about. <laughs> okay, um, so a carbon tax we've talked about already is just if you consume this ton of carbon, you are charged this many euro and it goes into the government coffers and the government decides what they do with it after that. Yeah. The EU ETS is what's called a trading scheme. So the way that works is, with the carbon tax, you basically say, here's the price of carbon and the amount that people emit kind of comes out in the wash. Mm. With a trading scheme, you do the, the opposite way around. You say, here's the quantity of carbon that we want. 
and then you let the price come out in the wash. So you essentially say, we want to emit X million tonnes of carbon next year and no more. Um, So that means that there are X million carbon permits available. And if you want to emit a tonne of carbon, you must own a carbon permit. And then everybody just trades these carbon permits amongst themselves. So the idea is that if, you know, if there's somebody who really wants to buy or really wants to emit a tonne of carbon, they'll give you 15 euro for that permit. And if you really want to emit a tonne of carbon yourself, but you don't, it's not as valuable to you as 15 euro, then you'll sell your permit to the person who does want to. And because carbon is the exact same good no matter where you go in Europe, that means that it's just one market, everybody trades with everybody, and we find out what the price of carbon is this year. Um, the, the argument for having one price across Europe is exactly as you say. Um, but, of course, you need to make sure that you are releasing the right amount of permits in the, in the first place. Mm. And originally, the amount of permits that were given out were essentially far too high, which meant that the carbon price was really, really low and they've been trying to reform that scheme. But it has another effect as well, which is one you've talked about, which is the waterbed effect. And that means that no matter what happens next year, X million tonnes of carbon will be emitted, where X is just whatever the European Commission decides, essentially. Um, And that means that if somebody in Ireland decides to not emit a tonne of carbon and sells their carbon permit instead, somebody in Italy or Germany or Slovakia or somewhere is going to buy that carbon permit and will still emit that carbon. So the waterbed effect means, okay, we might push down on this in, in Ireland to get our carbon emissions really low but that just means they're going to go up somewhere else so that's why it's the waterbed you might push down on one side of a waterbed but that's just going to push the water somewhere else and the opposite corner of the waterbed is going to pop up again So in the context of the waterbed effect is there some justification for renewable subsidies a common argument are we need to get this industry up and running we need to get some momentum behind deployment we see that they don't necessarily reduce emissions given the fact that we have an EU ETS scheme but is there some sort of more soft justification for, for this policy. So let's take the example of Germany for, for a minute. They yeah. kind of really went hammer and tongs in after renewables, particularly yeah. solar. Um very, very high subsidies. The the massive investment in solar in Germany, um and then there was also kind of a big push in China as well, the price has since collapsed. Yeah. So the, the rest of the world gets to enjoy pretty cheap photovoltaic panels. Yeah. But German consumers, unfortunately, are locked into paying this very high price. So yeah. you could argue that they actually went after the the, the technology a bit too early. Yeah. So there's something to be said for, yeah, trying to make people familiar with the technology, getting first mover advantage, so maybe we should subsidize for that reason. But there are downsides as well, where if you get it wrong, you're locked into paying yeah. this high price for a long time. And that's another argument against technology specific subsidies absolutely because if the policymakers happen to get it right happy days but in general there's only one way to get something right there's a million ways to get it wrong so chances are policymakers are going to back the wrong horse and then we're paying the cost yeah. for a long time as german consumers are seeing yeah in terms of the social acceptability um there's been some very interesting research done on this by environmental psychologists um and they're essentially trying to get at okay well there's a lot of People throw the phrase NIMBY around a lot, not in my backyard. Another phrase that you hear is banana, which I really like. Build absolutely <laughs> nothing anywhere near anyone. <laughs> so, uh, 
But what some of the more recent research from environmental psychology is saying is this is a bit reductionist and it's it's also a bit insulting really yeah this idea that everyone is just saying no 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 and it's a question of well why are they saying no what's motivating that um and it, you know people say things like oh oh sure they're all afraid that they'll they'll get cancer from wind turbines and sure they're idiots because because they won't but actually Sometimes people just have a kind of an attachment to their local area. In fact, everybody does have an attachment to yeah. their local area, we'd hope. It means something something to them. What does place mean? What does identity mean? What does your environment mean, your visual environment? How does it make you feel? How does it make you react? And how does a wind turbine change that? So there's less opposition to solar panels than wind turbines, for example. Why is that? And they actually think that one of the reasons behind that is wind turbines move. Mm. whereas solar panels don't or if they do move it's very slowly over the course of a day they just slowly tilt yeah something moving is actually far more visually intrusive than something just sitting there and now then you can ask the question of well then why doesn't anyone like pylons pylons just sit there they don't move but they're also pretty ugly whereas wind turbines can look quite quite nice if you're far away but as you said in ireland there's housing everywhere which means someone's likely to be close by so what i would say is the social acceptability question has not been solved Mm. but one thing that does seem to make a big difference is setback distance so if you just do something simple like increase the setback distance then that can actually really help get a lot of these projects over the line the quid pro quo though is then we really need to do something about the amount of one-off housing because if the setback distance is really high but you still have houses absolutely everywhere then that means there is nowhere or very few places that are a sufficient setback distance yeah. away. So there was an interesting set of maps produced by Minuto University a few years ago looking at exactly that and they estimated what land would be available for wind turbines if the setback distance was increased by a marginal amount. And because of all the one-off housing, a small increase in the setback distance meant that the amount of land that would be available would fall from a very small amount to almost zero. So... The one-off housing is a huge impediment in that regard. Just to come back to the issue on the solar subsidies in in Germany, one interesting aspect of that is at the time of the solar subsidies, there was a few uh, indigenous providers of, of, of solar technologies. But as costs came down, a lot of that has been substituted for production from China and abroad. So if it was for industrial reasons, well, that was definitely overshadowed now by imports from abroad. So these sort of soft measures can backfire, as you say. And this is something that I suppose a bullet that we, we missed in Ireland because maybe in around 2009, 2010, there was a big push behind wave energy in Ireland for a similar reason, because we had we have a lot of wind and we have a lot of wave in Ireland. And there was a perception that we'd missed a boat when it comes to wave energy. But Ireland doesn't have an, an advantage when it comes to industry. We're a service-based economy predominantly. So this could have been a very costly policy where we would have been going against the odds to succeed. Yeah, and we need to answer the same questions now about solar. You know, there's a there's a push to, to try to incorporate more solar into the portfolio. And, you know... Yeah. Economists always try to differentiate between positive and normative questions. I'm not here to say, should we have solar or not? But we do need to acknowledge the costs associated with it. And the reality is the cheapest renewable source available to us at the moment is still wind. Um, And if we decide that we just hate wind that much, that we want solar instead, fine. But there's big costs associated with it. And I've done a lot of simulation work here and so have other colleagues in the ESRI. And there's really no cost scenario in which you get 
installations in solar the only way installations in solar works out as cost optimal is if you just physically restrict the amount of wind and you say okay we're not allowing any more wind right. so that's really the only argument in favor of solar there, there are other arguments people try to make around oh we want to diversify our portfolio yeah but that doesn't make so much sense you want to diversify your entire electricity generation portfolio for sure yeah but there's no particular reason to diversify your renewable portfolio because what's the marginal cost of wind zero what's the marginal cost of solar zero so i was just going to ask you about this diversification issue um now it is true that you know the wind doesn't blow necessarily at the same time of day as when the sun is shining but we don't know what the right balance between wind and solar should be for the best outcome for the system so a subsidy guiding that decision requires that the uh, policymaker knows what that balance is, whereas the market price can guide this automatically. So the market price should guide the decision, not the subsidy. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, there are other things that can diversify a portfolio as well. So we found, for example, in other research that uh, there is an incentive to invest in power to gas, which is essentially where you use electricity to split water into hydrogen and then oxygen. And then you can even use that to turn it into biogas. Um A power-to-gas unit on its own will not make any money. But if you own a power-to-gas unit and some wind turbines, you'll make more money than if you just owned the wind turbines. So what that means is the power-to-gas technology can make up a part of a profit-maximising portfolio, even if it itself is not profit-maximising. But if you instead say, okay, do you know what, we're going to subsidise solar and you can use that to diversify your portfolio, then that means that you might end up having that power to gas option closed off to you because some policymaker decided to jig subsidies around the place. Okay, so maybe we should take some time to think about how can we make carbon taxes work better? Okay, so one of the arguments made against a carbon tax is that it doesn't work. Mm. Now, that's just not true. The The literature shows quite clearly that um, whenever you've introduced a carbon tax, it does reduce emissions. However, let's... I don't want to say throw a bone, but let's let's acknowledge this argument to some extent in that if your substitution possibilities are limited, then a carbon tax can only take you so far. So what do I mean by that? One of the things we found in the research that we did on carbon taxes was that people were actually, of all the different types of commodity goods, they were least responsive to a change in the price of energy. So if the price of food changes a bit, even, people really reduce... Their, in, their consumption of food it's that you get the least response from the price change in energy and the reason for that is it's not so easy to substitute away from it you know if it's yeah. cold you're going to stick on the heating no matter what now we still did see a reduction in carbon emissions I'm not trying to say carbon taxes don't work they do but can we make them work better so let's go back to our example of the person who lives 30 miles from their job and they have to drive there in a diesel car and they've got no choice well what if we were to change the parameters a bit so that they would find it easier to substitute away from a diesel car? So, for example, let's say we'll put them a bit further from their job. We'll say they live 60 kilometres from their job 
and there's no charge point at their job that means they have to drive their diesel car 60 kilometers there and 60 kilometers back because you can't get 120 kilometers on one charge of an electric car mm. on the other hand if we put a charge point at their work then they might be able to drive to work plug their car in and drive back again in their electric car so by changing the infrastructure what we've done is we've actually changed their price responsiveness so this means that without the charger carbon prices go really high and they're still driving their diesel car and they're paying all this carbon tax but with the charger they might switch to an electric car and that means that they don't pay the carbon tax and we also reduce some carbon emissions so what policy can do is it can maybe change infrastructure Mm. or maybe some other changes maybe around things like making it easier to work from home say through putting in better uh, communications better broadband and maybe changing the way we plan our our towns and our cities uh, in order to make it easier for people to switch away from carbon so that means that you're still bringing in your carbon tax you're still increasing the price of carbon but you're getting more bang for your buck by giving people more substitution possibilities okay moran i think that's it thanks very much for coming on the podcast no problem thanks very much enjoyed it Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.